So I'm here with legendary. Oh. I'm here with legendary singer Frida Payne. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay, considering everything that I just had surgery um, approximately uh, eight days ago. Well, I might say, yeah, nine days ago. It was June the 10th I had my surgery. I had a total shoulder replacement. So I've been, yeah, I've been walking around with a, with a sling. <laughs> well, they call it a shoulder immobilizer, shoulder pillow. So I guess a lot of people who've had shoulder injuries, especially athletes and people like that, they're probably, they're very familiar with those kind of things. Yeah, I imagine like throughout your career, uh, you know, performing uh, puts a lot of wear and tear on the body. Is that like, you know, what led to you having a surgery? It's not performing, honey. It's not performing. I'll tell you what it is. Yoga. Okay. And also, and I, I don't want to put the blame on yoga exclusively. What's this that just popped up? I would have to say, my genes it's my it's my heredity cancel okay. so um let's start from the beginning i know you were born in uh detroit michigan uh when did you know like you wanted to pursue a career in you know as a professional singer uh i was 13 when it first it when it first kind of uh, uh appeared to me where i got the idea and it wasn't so much my idea. It was other people telling me, you're good. You should, you, you should consider being professional, you know, using this as a career, you know, because I never would have had that kind of ego to presume that I was good enough to go ahead and be a professional singer. I was thinking about, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do for a living? Uh, should I be a, try to be a doctor? Not, that wasn't going to happen, you know, because I didn't have that good of grades. And then I said, well, maybe I can be a nurse, you know, and I was thinking and, and um, you know, I, was, I, I wasn't sure. But then when I, it came upon me and I, and I discovered that my singing was good enough my voice, I can take these off. My voice was good enough to really take it seriously and, and, pursue, and, pers and pursue, um, uh, um, you know, singing as a profession for the rest of my life. It, it, it's sort of like, it came to me as a, you know, just like, it just appeared as like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. So I'm going to start, uh, you know, choosing classes. By, by that time, back in public schools, you could take music classes. So I start, you know, choosing, you could either choose a music class, you know, choir, music theory or whatever, or you could take something else. You know, I could take sewing, you know, they had the different curriculums you could take. A lot of them, they, they've removed a lot of those different things now. Uh, home economics, I don't even know, if, I don't know if they still have, have home economics anymore. And I, it was exclusively, I, I believe it was, at that time, I believe it was for girls. And you know, that home, uh, home economics, that was where they taught you how to cook. You know, how to prepare your vegetables right, how to bake. Uh, I, we learned how to bake biscuits from scratch to make, to bake, to do a cake, bake a cake and make a cake from scratch. You know, I don't mean out of the Pillsbury uh, cake, you know, cake mix box. I mean, from like taking the flour, sifting it, and then how to measure it properly. There is a way, by the way. 
And um, people forget a lot of us, we don't do that anymore. A lot, especially a lot of single women who are career women, they don't do that or they don't have time to do it or they don't want to do it. And um, I, I did, you know, I know how to make a souffle, how to uh, uh, learning, learning that, you, you know, you, you, you know how to cook your vegetables and not to overcook them because you you know pull the you you pull the vitamins the nutrients out of it uh and, and how um you know things like oh sewing i had a sewing class i wasn't so good at that but i guess i wasn't meant to be a seamstress <laughs> <laughs> but then i had oh i had modern dancing there was modern dancing that was a curriculum that i my chose we had gym gymnastics uh sports like in the summertime we had baseball and and you know when the weather was good we every every day every uh five every uh let's say monday through friday that was those were the school days uh i was on the baseball team and i was really good at that and uh, wasn't i was better at baseball than i was at basketball i'll just put it that way and uh yeah and i was i was an average student academically average i was no i wasn't a genius by no stretch of the imagination but i guess i was just a regular kid and uh you talk about like you know uh i guess gaining confidence you know from people telling you that you could sing i, I know like you know like from past interviews i've seen that you you sung in the church and then like i guess uh you do jingles was there like a particular moment like you know that gave you like you know the confidence and stuff like now i'm going to pursue a career you know, doing, doing music? Well, I had already decided that by the time I started singing jingles. Uh, when I sang in church, that was because part of being, of going to church, and then if you sing, especially if they find out that you have a decent voice, they're going to want you to, you know, they're going to pick you out and say, oh, we, we want you to do a solo next Sunday or something like that. Um, I never was in the church choir, but I would occasionally be picked out to like get up and just sing a solo period. Uh, and then I did uh, TV appearances in Detroit. I won, I was on talent co contest in Detroit on TV. I won and I, I came in second for a national contest that came, that emanated from New York. And that was called the Ted Mack Amateur Hour. For people who are old enough to remember that, it goes back to the 50s. Uh, Ted Mack was the equivalency of American Idol or The Voice. These, uh, I call these uh, talent contests on steroids today. So I came in second on one of those. And, uh, and then from that point, I started getting write-ups and I got a a big write-up in Jet Magazine when, uh, I guess when I was 16, my first write-up in Jet. And I was, I was astounded because I said, oh my God, how did they even know about me? You know, little old me from Detroit. And uh, they knew about me because I was on a national TV show, a talent contest. And see the Jet, Jet Magazine was uh, the, the black owned magazine out, out of uh, Chicago. That was Ebony, which is still around today. Um, and that was the magazine where it came out weekly, whereas Ebony was like, it came out monthly. And um, that was the magazine that all black folks, they always, people got that, that was the magazine to get because they would talk only about what black folks were doing, whether it be political, 
athletic, entertainment, or otherwise. They, and at the end, they had a page at the very back of the book of the magazine. There was a page where they noted any person of, let's say, uh, of color, African-American, who, whoever was appearing on a national TV show, they would have them listed. That's how it was, because that's how infrequent Black folks were on TV. And nowadays, it's like, I mean, you don't forget about it. We're, we're in commercials. We're at, you know, we got uh, talk shows, everything. <laughs> Drama, so I, movies, everything. I guess at some point you get uh, chosen to be in the Duke Ellington band and you uh, go out to Las Vegas. And I've seen like, uh, like a previous interview where you were talking about how uh, you were surprised that like, you know, um, you couldn't find a room on the strip, even though you were performing there. I was with, uh, with my mother and a man by the name of Mac Ferguson. Uh, and we drove, Mac Ferguson was one of my first mentors. And he was a pianist, a wonderful pianist. And we did some little jobs around Detroit, you know, you know, little private things and uh, maybe little supper clubs. And, uh, and then Mac would just work with me, rehearse with me, and he would coach me. And, and he said, Frida, learn as many standards as you can. He said, I'm talking about the American Songbook. The American Songbooks would be the music of George and Ira Gershwin, Cole Porter, um, you know, all, all, the, all the great, all the great, uh, Rogers and Hart, Johnny Mercer, you know, just keep Duke Ellington, you know, W.C. Handy, all these the great uh, uh, songwriters of, of that of that era, and uh, so he was. It was my mother and I and, and Mac, and we drove from Detroit to Las Vegas, which took us about two days because, of course, we did stop and stay at a motel because it was, you know, you needed to get some rest, some sleep. And by the time we arrived in Vegas, it was, I'll never forget, it was like about eight or nine o'clock in the evening. And we drove down the strip and I swear to God, I felt like I was, I felt like I was in, in, a, in a big show, a, a big dream sequence because it was so much Z, there was the, the, the elite, the, uh, the lights and everything and um, the neon and every hotel, it was all lit up. And I mean, that strip, it was sort of like, the, it, it was like a, it was, it was like an oasis in the middle of the desert an oasis of light. And that's what the strip was like back then. And we're talking in, this is 1961. So we arrived there. And so we said, well, we better find a, a motel to book, you know, a couple of rooms. So we saw these mo different motels and uh, we would stop at one. Mac would go, it would say vacancy. Mac would walk in, come back out, they said no vacancy, but the sign says vacancy. So we moved on to another one. He go, he went in, came out, same thing. He said, I don't know what's going on. See, we were from Detroit, so there was no segregation in Detroit. So we weren't hip to that. Although we were very, very aware of the Southern states because we drove through Texas and other, you know, different states like that where we did experience, we couldn't eat in a, re a regular restaurant that was a white restaurant. You couldn't eat, you had to go and get something 
take it out. You couldn't sit down and be served, believe it or not. But it was like that. And uh, we understood that part. Um, but we thought we thought Las Vegas would be cool, you know, because Vegas is gambling and what do you call it? Sin City. We thought, okay, they, they're probably more lenient. But they weren't. Except you could go into the casinos. You could gamble. And as a black person, you could perform, okay? You could perform, but you couldn't stay on the strip in the hotel or the casino. You couldn't, you know, live in the, on the strip if you were working there. So Duke Elling, we went to Vegas because of Duke. And um, my mother, we saw a guy walking down the street, a black guy, and, and I guess he was working at one of the hotels because he looked like he could have been a janitor or some, or maintenance guy. And we stopped and we said, hey, what's, what is happening? We, we're just tired and we drove in from Detroit. And, and then my mother said, yes, and my daughter is, I'm with my daughter and she's here because she's gonna be singing with Duke Ellington's band and he's at the Riviera Hotel. And isn't he, isn't Duke Ellington staying at the Riviera Hotel? And so the guy said, oh no, ma'am, he can't be staying there. They don't let us stay in these hotels. He says, he's probably over on the west side. They call it the dust, the dust bowl. And he's probably at, at the, um, uh, the west motel. And so we saw, uh, you know, we went to one of those, a pay phone, it's hard to find a, pay, a pay phone nowadays, but because almost every everybody has a cell phone but anyway we went to a pay phone and we called up the west motel and we found out that duke ellington was staying there and the whole band was staying there and so we we uh requested to book a couple of rooms and we drove over there and that's where we stayed and that was my my experience, but that was in 1960. By 1963, it it had become they changed the uh, I think the uh, it had been desegregated by then, and uh, they were allowing you know some of the rules had been relaxed and and changed. And as you well know, remember uh, Frank Sinatra had a lot to do with that too because. Uh, uh, he had Sammy Davis Jr. appearing along with him at the Sands Hotel on the Strip, and uh, they did. They wanted Sammy. They didn't want Sammy to come in the front door. I, I've heard, he, I've read in this book. Uh, I forget what, what the name of the book is, but it tells the story of Sammy Davis Jr. is at the uh, hotel and he jumps in the pool, and they actually drain the pool because he jumped in it. Yeah, uh, and I know somebody else that told me a story similar to that. Uh, Gregory Hines and his brother, uh, uh, Maurice Hines. And it was Maurice who told me because the, the Hines, Hines and dad, they worked on the strip as well, along with their father. And um, they used to open for Ella Fitzgerald and different acts like that on the strip. And I remember Maurice told me, he said, Frida, once we, we went to the pool and put our feet in the pool and we took a little dip. Next thing, the next thing he knew, the next day they drained the pool unbelievable uh, i want to ask you what was your experience like in um europe you know uh was was it the same type of racism because i know you no toured. no no that's why you saw you've heard of these like josephine baker a lot of these entertainers who went to france 
and she discovered a whole new acceptance of her color of her race it was like they embraced her they didn't uh, you know look at her with disdainment or or like that she's beneath them they embraced her they exalted her and uh, she became a, 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 a huge star over there in france and in europe also other to entertain some entertainers would come go over there and st all, just stay you know they would live there um as a matter of fact, I had a little experience myself to share. And this was in 1965, not that much longer from when the Civil Rights Bill was, was signed in the US. But this was in Stockholm, Sweden. I was booked to go to Stockholm, Sweden and uh, 1965. And I was there for like about three or four months. And uh, I worked this wonderful, uh, restaurant called burns and it was what it was a huge supper club restaurant a supper club and this uh they wanted to keep me there i recorded an album it was called frida Payne in stockholm you can still probably find it online uh even though when we recorded it it was specified that it would only be released in uh in europe or in stock or in sweden but you know, after Band of Gold came out, honey, that record, all of a sudden I saw it in the record stores. But um, anyway, they wanted, a promoter wanted, he said, I want you to stay. He says, I'm gonna make a big star out of you over here. He says, and the only thing that kept me from doing that was that my family, my mother, father, sister, uh, you know, was still back in Detroit. I said, I, I, I don't think I'd be able to do that because I'd be too homesick. Wow. So let's talk about our uh, band of gold. You mentioned it, uh, it comes out in 1970 and it pretty much instantly becomes a hit record. Yep. It, it was, a uh, it wasn't instant. It was one of those things where it, it was the second single off of the album that I recorded. And the first single they put out was called the unhooked generation. And when that didn't do anything you know it went to a certain point it went on the charts but it it didn't move up you know it's, i think i i don't know what it, i don't remember what the number was it went to on on billboard but uh by by 1970 they released band of gold i think in february and it started to like it was slow it was slow and then all of a sudden it started to pick up and every week it would just move a little few more points, a few more points, a few more, till finally it became, by the summertime, it was a bona fide hit and a gold record. That's incredible. A lot of people in my generation, they know your voice uh, from Styles P song, uh, I Get High. I wanted to know like, uh, you know, how did you feel about being on like, you know, such an iconic weed anthem? Well, I'll tell you what. They sped my voice up till I sounded like Minnie Mouse, and I'm not exaggerating. And other than that, that would not be an exact. I mean, it's nice that the that the young kids, I'd say the kids, like uh, we call the millennials or the teenagers, that that's how they they came to know my name. But they didn't really know me as an artist or a singer. Now, if it 
provoke them to say, well, let me check this out and see what other stuff she's got out, you know, because that, uh, I get high on your memory, the way Styles did it, he distorted my voice. So how are you going to know what kind of singer I am if your voice is, dist is distorted? So, uh, but the song in its originality is really nice. You know, I mean, the actual song is really nice. I get high in your memory. Yeah. And, um, you know, people like, you know, really need to check out your music. You have like, you know, uh, a wonderful catalog, you know, obviously in the, the Hall of Fame uh, for soul music. And uh, you recently released the EP, Let There Be Love. Can you talk about like, you know, um, recording the EP? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, most people know me as a R&B soul singer, which is really not the actual, uh, although I am, that is not where I live. I started, I did not start out singing soul music. I started out singing jazz. I sang jazz when I was a teenager. I did, I was, I was more cabaret, you know, like the cabaret singers and uh, Broadway type singing and cabaret, nightclub singing, uh, blues and um, American songbook type stuff. And then when I got, when I, I moved to New York when I was 18 and then um, I started to realize, I said, even though I'm working, I'm working nice supper clubs, but every everything I earn, I put right back into my career with gowns. I got to pay for arrangements. I got to pay for my living expenses. I said, I'm not really, you know, where, I mean, how, how far can I go in my career just staying on that level? So I, it just, ha you know, God is good because it was just meant to happen. Uh, a, a schoolmate of mine was visiting New York and uh, we got to speak, we got to talk, I got to, uh, um, I was living in New York and a friend of mine who lived in the next high rise apartment building on the Central Park West, she called, she said, you know, if old pal of yours is, is visiting me and he wants to say hello. And, and so that person was, happened to be Brian Holland. Brian Holland of the producing writing team of Holland, Dozier and Holland. And I said, hey, Brian, how are you doing? I haven't seen you since high school. And so I see you're famous now, Brian. And he said, oh, well, we're doing all right. He said, what are you doing? I said, well, I just, um, he says, are you on a record label now? I said, I was on ABC Paramount. And I was, and also Impulse. Because my first album was a jazz album recorded in 1963. And so there's the proof in the pudding right there. So any... Oh, that's Sherry my Hi, Sherry. I'm doing a Zoom. Oh, okay. Copy the case. Copy later. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. Yeah, that's my sister, Sherry. So anyway, let me turn off. So anyway, um, he said, "You're you're on a. Are you still with sign with uh, ABC Paramount?" I said, "No, that contract ran out." <laughs> And then he said, are you being managed by anybody? I said, not right now. I said, I just, I was with Joe Scandori for five years and, and I didn't want to continue with him. So that ran out too. So he said, well, that's perfect. He says, why don't you come with us? 
we just left Motown and uh, matter of fact, we're suing them. <laughs> and we formed our own label and it's called Invictus. I said, well, anyway, I said, wow, I'm shocked that you guys left Motown. He said, well, that's another story. But anyway, uh, he got me on the phone with his brother, Eddie, Eddie Holland. And uh, Eddie said, well, well, we'd like to fly you out back to Detroit and talk about signing you and recording you. And so he's, I said, yeah, okay, now part of that team is Lamont Dozier. I went to school with Lamont, you know, matter of fact, three years, mid school, middle school, uh, for three years, we were in the same homeroom together. So it was all, you might say, family, you know, de from Detroit, everybody that knew everybody. And it was coming back to me. And so I went back to Detroit, I signed with Invictus, we started recording, and the rest was history. Uh, why in uh, 1973 did you decide to leave Invictus? And I guess you went to uh, ABC, Dunhill, and Capital? Capital? Well, unforeseen un un at the time, uh, after I had Band of Gold, and then we, a year later we followed up with another gold record uh, that was Bring the Boys Home. Uh, I started, there were some little things I wasn't really pleased with uh, because, of, because of the fact that I had learned a lot more through travel, through experience, through more worldwide knowledge. Uh, some things I couldn't let just go by. I couldn't let just slip by because I realized that it, it wasn't, it didn't seem right to me and I didn't like the direction it was going in. Now, if I had stayed, there probably would have been a, maybe another hit record or two, but I was at the point where I just couldn't stomach it because I wasn't getting paid my royalties. And I guess you've heard this over and over again, even by, you know, artists like uh, Tony Braxton. Remember there was a time when she had a, a problem herself and, uh, and you keep hearing about this over and over again. And uh, so it's nothing, it's not new, you know, it's old, it goes way back. And so other things were going on and that I wasn't happy with. And I, I was an emotional, um, let's, I was emotionally distraught about it. So finally I said, well, I'll just put this in God's hands. And what happened was uh, I was able to meet someone who helped me uh, obtain lawyers who were quite really powerful out here in LA, in Century City, and uh, I sued them. I and I said, "Well, okay, I'm going. I'm going to go back back west, and and uh, you know, you'll have to suffer the consequences if you don't level off with me." I said, "I said at least make me feel good about it." I said, "At least if you don't want to pay me my royalties or whatever, you know, at least do something. You know, just don't do nothing." And that's I don't want to speak any more about that. I understand. And uh, by the early '80s, you have your you you're transitioning more more into acting. You're doing stuff on Broadway, uh, like you know. Can you talk about like you know uh, the duties of like having your own talk show, like today's Black Woman? Yeah, I had a talk show that was in 1981 and '82. I did it for two years, and it was in New York. And then I did some on location shows out here in LA. And uh, 
yeah, I did that, but I didn't want to continue it because I felt like at that time there was, this was just before Oprah came on the scene, you know, and my, I said to myself, well, if Barbara Walters was a singer, you know, she'd be singing. She wouldn't be doing, she wouldn't be a talk show hostess. <laughs> I said, I want to sing. Because having a talk show, by the way, it's not easy. Right. And it's very time consuming. You got to do your homework. You got to, when you have certain subjects every day uh, and see, this was only once a week. Now, can you, like Oprah, like, and now we got Tamron Hall. Can you imagine? They don't have a life because you you got, and, and they're five days a week. So they're constantly, you know, like, you know, doing their homework. They're constantly, you know, being being involved in the show. It's like, there's no, there's no rest. Unless, of course, when the show, when you do your shows, when this segment is over, uh, when you've done so many shows, uh, and then you have a hiatus, then that's different. Then you get a chance, like, go on a vacation or you do something else. But uh, I saw that it was, uh, but it, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing, it was very educational and very enlightening, you know, you know, especially dealing with the different subjects you have to deal with. Yeah, you learn a lot. It's very educational when you have a talk show. And uh, in the mid '90s, you released uh, a couple albums. Uh, one, uh, the Dove Music and Evening with Frida Payne live in concert, and it had your uh, sister on there, uh, Sherry Payne. So, uh, like you know, uh, was that the first time you guys got to work on a commercial project together? Um, actually, it was the first time, and then we worked on another project. I did Christmas with Frida and friends, and Sherry was on that too. We did. We did two uh, duets together, and um, along with uh, O.C. Smith and Mel Carter, Cuba Gooding Sr. Yeah, that was a good one. Oh, and then again, did I that we you asked me about my new EP? Yeah, uh, yeah, I did. Uh, I, and then you have a, I you got have a host of collabs on that. Johnny Mathis, like you know, I really uh, enjoy that song. Uh, Oh, they can't take that away from me, George and Ira Gershwin. Yeah, this was done um, at Capitol Records. We did this before the pandemic. Okay. And it was at Capitol Records, Studio A, with an 18-piece orchestra and strings. And we did They Can't Take That Away From Me. And then I did a duet with Kenny Lattimore. And that was also with the big band and strings and at Capitol. And we did Let There Be Love. The old Nat King Cole song, let there be you, let there be me, let there be oysters under the sea. Okay, let there be rain, let there be cuckoos and occasional rain, chili con carne and sparkling champagne. And that's a hot one. That's the title of the album. Do you have it? I, I've listened to it online. I, I, haven't, I haven't bought it, but I've listened to the whole album. It was incredible. I see that it's uh, climbing like, you know, the, uh, the jazz charts. It's uh, number 28. You had posted on your Instagram like about six Oh, eight. my darling, you are behind times. That was like 28, like, let's see, 28. Then it, then it went from 28 to, what's that, 23. No, wait, 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 wait. It's 21 now. Wow. It's 21. It, was, it, was, it started at 140. Then it went to one, then it went to 70, I think 78. 
then it went to 48 and then it went from 48 it went to 30 something 31 then to let's say 28 and now and then let's say now it's 21. no it was 23 last week now it's 21. You have uh, like all these incredible accomplishments, obviously being on the cover of Ebony, you know, being on the cover of Jet, you know, being in the Soul Music Hall of Fame, you know, uh, being a Dame of Malta, you know, what, what drives you now? Like, you know. Um, just, I would say, it's so funny you said that. I just said one word pop, survival, survival. Yeah, just like Gloria Gaynor said, I will survive. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, what's next for you in your career? Uh, well, I just basically, I just did a small part, an acting role on one of those, of uh, one of those uh, TV episodic uh, series that's on Netflix. It's called Family Reunion. Mm -hmm. And I think that segment I did is going to air in October of this year. And I just, we just, we did it this past January at Paramount Studios. So it's family reunion. And that's <laughs> is acting uh, a passion of yours? Where is that compared to singing? Because you've had well, some, I, some pretty uh, good roles. You, uh, you worked with Eddie Murphy on The Clumps, right? The Yeah, yeah, Nutty Professor, The Clumps. I had the cameo roles. I had, I've done little roles, you know, not, not but major, major, major roles, but, you know, small roles. But like they say in acting, there's no such thing as a small role. That's very true. Mm -hmm. Thank you so but, much. Uh, I've done, no, I've done acting a lot. I mean, I've done a lot of theater. Uh, I did, okay, I did the uh, uh, theater, a piece called Ella Fitzgerald, First Lady of Song, where I portrayed Ella Fitzgerald. And uh, I've done that three times. The first one, it was in 2004 in, in New Brunswick, New Jersey at the Crossroads Theater. And then the second time was in 2014. And that was in Alexandria, Virginia at Metro Stage. And these were all regional theaters, you know, equity theaters. And I just did it in 2018 in Wilmington, Delaware at the Delaware Theater. And we did the, did the um, it's a, it's a play, but of course, being it's about Ella, it's got it's a, it's got music in it all through all throughout it. But it's a play with dialogue and everything. And of course, I had a, wore a fat suit because Ella was quite larger than I am. <laughs> and the, you know the little short wigs. Yeah, it was great. I got great reviews, by the way. I always got great reviews. That's incredible. Uh, is is Broadway? I know, like you know, it's like a really hard work. People like, you know, um, you know, like say it's like, you know, from doing television, has that been your experience? Say that again. Broadway, uh, the, the work ethic is like a lot, lot more challenging than television, than episodic TV, people, people say. Well, I'll tell you what. Yeah, Broadway is, is, is hard. Uh, you're, indul you're totally indulged. Um, and also TV, I would say they're both hard in a way, because you know why? Because they both demand uh, your full attention a lot of your time. And especially if you, well, if you're on a Broadway show that goes on for like a whole year or more, then I'll put it this way, honey, you, at least you're getting a check every week. 
you know. <laughs> and, and, and you're adding to your, your uh, forthcoming uh, uh, pension plan. <laughs> I, I was uh, reading an interview and um, you were talking, I guess, about how um, Barry Gordy was actually like, you know, uh, your manager like early on. And I guess like it was a, a conflict, I guess, over the contract with your mother. Well, what happened was I was 14 years old. I was Barry Gordy's first female protege as a teenager before there was a Motown, before there was Tamala Records. And I was the first one that he wanted to work with and groom. And um, he wrote songs for me. He wrote four songs just for me, which I recorded. Uh, and we recorded them at a place called United Sound, which was located in Detroit on West Grand Boulevard, right down the street from where Hitsville is located today. Wow. And um, we all, you know, we went to he, took to, he took me and the master tapes to New York. And uh, he wanted to get it. I think he was trying to get a deal with me with... Um, uh, record a roulette records so he had a meeting with uh, Morris Levy and when he got back to Detroit he and my mother sat down in our living room and I remember sitting on our on my uh, on our staircase um, right off the living room and I could hear them talking and they'd go back and forth and back and forth and it was like it was like negotiating back and forth and my mother was unrelenting and and he would not and he would not give in and she would not give in and so and nothing happened it was a stalemate and i never signed simple as that um what are your thoughts about like detroit like i mean i imagine it's a pretty different city from the the time you grew up in you know uh you know like last year i think uh detroit it actually led the nation in violent crime according to the fbi report like you know uh you know what was the experience like, you know, of the Detroit that you grew up in and, and the Detroit that it is now? The Detroit that I knew when I grew up does not resemble the Detroit of today. The Detroit that I, Detroit back when I grew up was a great metropolitan city. And you didn't have the crime and the violence that we know and we hear about today. Um, that's all I can say. And then when they had the riots, the big riot back in six, 1967, that changed a lot. That changed, that changed a lot of Detroit. But, um, all I can, I, I can tell you is that I, I had a wonderful childhood. I had a wonderful, um, experience, you know, growing up in Detroit, up in, up into through my teen years, up until six, I say 16 or 17 years old. And uh, uh, matter of fact, I talked to a cousin of mine yesterday and he was telling me how the violence has increased. I mean, he says it creates insanity. It's like people are going, uh, this pandemic has people who were already crazy, it's, it's, it's really like uh, escalating now, you know? You know these these uh, uh, freeway shootings and things like that, and innocent people just being killed for I mean kid I mean kids children for nothing. 
you know, innocent people who have not, you know, you're just driving home or whatever. And, uh, you know, people just get ticked off for almost nothing. You know, like, okay, you wearing a mask, you not wearing a mask, you know, you get into a fight. And uh, I just don't understand it. With um, the pandemic, you know, uh, going on for like the past year, uh, how did that affect how you, you uh, move like in your life, your own personal life? Well, you know, just like everybody else, it's like, remember that old line they came up with, we're all in this together? When that ha- when it happened a year ago, back in March, it was like, well, this is like, I don't know. It's like something out of the Bible where, you know, the book of Revelations where they say, uh, this is what's happening. The, the, the world is beginning to change. Uh, but I never, you know, I never for, foresaw it coming. I never, I always felt like, oh, this is going to happen another 20 years from now. You know, this is not going to happen anytime soon. But guess what? It's happening now. And the thing is that you have to, be, you know, trust somebody and the scientist. And uh, we were, we were kind of encouraged, but misled by the former Trump administration by Trump telling people, oh, this is going to just go away or disappear. And to me, that was either out of fear or trying to maintain control over not trying to let, uh, not trying to panic the public. But at the same time, what it is is what it is. And reality is reality. And when it comes to something like this, that could hospitalize you and kill you there it's not about trying to like you know keep everybody uh happy or trying to say pat them on the back and say it's going to be all right when you know that person is dying you know but uh what i'm saying i'm saying that to say that when you know how serious something is you know you had better start making preparations or doing what you're supposed to do to keep yourself safe. And that's all I need to say about that. Yeah. Uh, do you see but, it? Oh, but, but the thing is that, see, the thing about that is like it cut off, it, it cut off a lot of people had lost their jobs or had to quit their jobs. Uh, they, they wanted you to stay home. Uh, all my gigs were canceled that I had last year. And um, except for, it's actually for one or two that happened before the pandemic hit. And then I actually did a gig last November in Baltimore, Maryland, but it was under restrictive uh, conditions. And uh, that was the only, but that was it. That was it. And thank God for, you know, let's say the unemployment situation, you know, the, um, uh, the EDD, that that helped uh, that helped out a lot of people that helped a lot uh, do you see things uh returning back to normal in la like i guess like you know they're they're reopening a lot of places and stuff and everything are taking up a- yeah i see it i see it i see it i see it but now if you i guess you watch the news or you should at least once a day or something I watch it a lot. Some people say you shouldn't watch the news. It only gonna like stress you out, you know? And I remember my, my friend, Dick, the late Dick Gregory used to tell me that I says, I don't watch the news. (laughs) 
I said, well, how do you know so much? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, that man, turned, he turned me on to a lot of great things. Uh, he knew a lot about health and, of course, a lot about conspiracy theories and other mm -hmm. things. But uh, he was a, a great man, and I, I am privileged to have known him, blessed to have known him. And but, he was uh, dedicated to civil rights is one of the things. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, uh, like, I remember hearing a story about, like, you know, where he got this big check. And, like, you know, instead of, like, sending it home to his family and stuff, he gave it to the movement. And I thought, like, you know, and stuff, everything that, you know, uh, you know, putting putting his money, like, where, you know, his mouth his is. Mouth so is, yeah. I yeah, he's right. a good man. He was a good man. We became we became friends. Wow, can you share a story with uh, Dick Gregory about about him? Oh well, let's see. I go back. I don't have any particular like anything dramatic to say. I uh, just anything like you know something that you know about his memory that you know that, that maybe like a little bit humorous. Well. All I can say is that he basically turned me on to a lot of good stuff. He turned, he was into like health and uh, alternative medicine and techniques and stuff like that. And he would, he actually turned me on to some um, uh, healthy things to do, uh, global cardio, EECP, uh, e e um, it was, it's a, it's a thing where you go to, you have to go to a particular clinic and, um, and they, you get on a table and they strap you in and it pump and they strap you in and, and they, and the uh, straps start pumping you and pumping you and what it pumps the blood through your veins and your capillaries and, and to, up through your heart. And what it does, it, it literally oxygenates your body and it clears out the arteries. So if you have a heart condition or if you have clogged arteries or a blood clot, high blood pressure, it, it, what it does is that it helps to alleviate that, all of that. So, and then he turned me on to another thing was called calibration. And it was, uh, it's like a, a machine, a little, uh, a computer, a computer. And they strap, and they strap you up like your ankles, your wrist, and they put a band around your forehead. And you're, you're in tune with this computer that's programmed to detect everything in your body. Let's say if you if you're totally healthy, it'll it'll print it all out that you're totally healthy. You don't need anything, but it'll tell you if you have allergies, um, uh, what foods you should eat, what foods you shouldn't eat. Uh, it'll it'll even it's even even able to detect your your mood swings. Uh, it tells you if you have any underlying diseases like cancer. It, they also it tells you if you have. It was able to detect that I was going to be getting. Um, arthritis and at the time I said I don't have arthritis I said I'm fine I don't have any aches and or pains I said I don't have any I'm not going to have arthritis they said well it's here it said it's underlying it's it's going to come and you know about I think a year later I started in my yoga class I started feeling a little little pain in my knees and that was like about 15 years ago or 20 years ago and finally, it escalated to the point where last year, a year ago, exactly, I had to have my left knee replaced, wow. you know, because of arthritis and bone on bone. And then I also, 
I just had surgery on my shoulder. I had a total shoulder replacement a week ago. And that's because of severe arthritis, bone on bone. You know, so all I can say is that you can't fool Mother Nature. So that's heredity. That probably comes from my, my mother's side, I believe. I think it comes from my mother's side. Wow. Like, uh, what was it like uh, to work with, like, you know, uh, the, all the people that you had on your EP? Uh, oh, you know, oh that was a dream. That was a dream. Everybody, every, first of all, my, the first one we, we uh, recorded with that day was uh, Kenny Lattimore. And Kenny, oh my God, what a sweet, he's a sweetheart. He's a beautiful man. Um, matter of fact, he just got married and to this lady who's a judge. So I, I think he did well. I think he did well. I think, you know, he's going to, you know, be okay with, with this lady. And um, anyway, he did, we did Let There Be Love together and he did a great job great job and then came and then after he was finished in walks johnny mathis and i was so happy to see him because i was thinking oh my god i got johnny mathis i can't believe it you know I, what if he cancels at the last moment what if something happens on the way to the studio and he can't make it and when he walked in the, when he walked down that hall and into the studio i was like, oh my god thank you jesus and that was wonderful working with him and then um and then Dee Dee came, Dee Dee Bridgewater, and then she came in, and we hugged because we, you know, we go way back, and uh, it was a joy working with Dee Dee because we, with with Dee Dee, we did more jazz tunes. We did two, actually two songs. We did Moaning and Doodling together. We inter, they it was intertwined. It was all my idea. I picked those songs, and the, the arranger was is Gordon Goodwin. And he did the arrangement on it, and it turned out really, really nice. And then uh, the only one that that uh, wasn't able to get into uh, the studio in L.A. was Kurt Elling, because he lives back east in New York. And uh, we find <clears throat> so he did his um, in Chicago. He was in a studio in Chicago, and it was by Zoom. And uh, that's how we did it. And uh, I guess you guys were in LA, were recording in Capitol uh, Records Studio A, which is like uh -huh. a, a legendary room. What was the vibe like, you know, like uh, recording in such a, you know, a legendary room? Oh my dear, it was, it was surreal. And I'll tell you why. That wasn't, wasn't my first time. I recorded, I was signed to Capitol in the 70s. So I've recorded in Studio A before in 1977, 78, 79. And then in 2014, I recorded at Capitol in Studio A. I was signed, I had a one record deal. I did an album that came out on Mac Avenue, Mac Avenue Records, the artistry label. And we recorded the entire thing, um, in Studio A at Capitol Records, and that came out, and the, and that album was called "Come Back to Me, Love." That's on Mac Avenue. So this was once again revisiting, I would call my dream studio. 
What would be your advice to uh, young people interested in pursuing a career in the entertainment industry, wanting to, you know, follow, you know, your path of, you know, uh, having a career? Go for it. Go for it. If that's what, if it's on your heart, if you feel that this is what you want to do, if you feel you can make it, of course, I have to say it might be a little harder today, but it's totally different. I can't advise them uh, because my journey is, is different from what their journey is going to be. And see, now we're living in a, in a whole nother world of technology, of, you know, of, of all kinds of different things going on. And like, for instance, the record business is not the same. It's not the same at all. You know, you got everything is downloaded. People get stuff online for free. You know, and of course, you want to buy, if you want to get a, 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 a regular, regular CD, uh, which some people consider antiquated, but some people still love CDs. And guess what? I guess you know this too. A vinyl has come back. Vinyl has come back. And uh, I that gives me a ray of hope of sunshine because uh, that shows me that everything old is new again. Yeah. What are your thoughts about like, you know, uh, the changes to the music industry? You know, uh, like even, you know, I went to Best Buy yesterday and like I couldn't, they don't sell physical CDs anymore. I didn't know that. Like I was like, you know, looking to go buy a physical CD, but uh, <laughs> you know, that's, become like you know something of the past like how things are changing with streaming and you know uh it just seems i i interviewed um kenny rogers in the past like before he passed away and like one of the things that he was saying was he feel he felt that the music industry was just artists like are just putting out singles you know is is everything's uh -huh. about the single and well, like it's not, you know it's always been like that it's like when you do let's say if you do an album you put out a single from the album yeah you know, or if all you're going to do is a single, you know, the single would be the teaser for for the album, forthcoming album. But the single comes out first. And then you say, if you get a good reaction from the single, then you say, OK, now we can do the album because they like the single. But most people do, from what my experience is, you do the album first. Then you pick a single to put out, you know, and then see how that how that works, and uh, and then you know, if it works well, then you or if it doesn't do anything, then you put out another one. You know? What's next for you in your career? Well, what's next? Let's say I don't know at this point. All I can say is that I will keep on doing what I'm doing, performing. And also, um, you know, promoting this EP as well, and just keep maintaining my career. Oh, I forgot! Oh my God, what's wrong with me? I have a book. I have a book, so I'll be promoting that book this year. Uh, at this point, I think we're we're looking at a release date for the book in October of 2021, and it's my memoirs. The book is based on my life and my memoirs. Definitely. I, I will definitely read it and uh, hopefully you can come back and uh, I'll definitely have a lot more questions for you. And I really appreciate you taking the time. You've had such a legendary career. I'll recommend to everyone to listen to Let There Be Love by Frida Payne. Just listen to your, your catalog 
is absolutely incredible. You're a legend. I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm honored. And thank you so much, Frida Pan. Um, thank you. I enjoyed this interview. Thank you, Ryan. You have a nice day. Okay, you too. Bye-bye.